Welcome back for another helping of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anatta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. A couple of years ago, I had Huddersfield Town fan and long-time Vent supporter and champion Charlie Roebuck on the podcast. He'd also previously written a few articles for me for the blog section. But in this episode, I'm checking in with his sister, Jasmine. Jasmine is an events professional, but after a negative experience of workplace bullying, Jasmine stepped away from events completely to go back to university to complete a bachelor's degree in business management. Jasmine has already written one article for Vent called Talking Really Does Help, which we dive into in this episode. We talk about that experience of workplace bullying and the impact it had on her mental health in this episode. We talk about prioritising helping others over her own mental health, which has eventually caught up with her. We talk about the grief that she went through in losing her granddad in August 2021, how her niece and nephew boost her mental health on a daily basis, and the importance of stepping out of your comfort zone. So this is how my check-in with Jasmine Roebuck, went. Jasmine Roebuck, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. I feel this pod has been a long time coming after the article you did. So well done. Well done, mate, for agreeing to do this and come on the pod. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been a bit nervous about it, but actually quite excited. <laughs> I think two years wow, since the Wow, is that how long it's been? Yeah. Crikey. Doing well. It feels like, feels like five seconds ago, doesn't it? Yeah. I know you've helped your that. brother Charlie so much with his mental health, but now it's your turn in the hot seat, Jazz. So without further delay... Are you ready to start the show? Let's go for it. As you said to me off air, events is not your life, but we are going to start the pod with your events professional journey, Jazz. So tell me how and why you got into it and the journey to where you are today. So I've been in events for what feels like forever. It's quite funny because I was listening to Charlie's podcast the other day and he was saying how he'd go and watch cricket and watch my dad and you know our family got him into that well ironically it's quite the same for me with events I went and started working with my dad at events and kind of just fell in love with it and it was the buzz of on-site events and being around people and kind of seeing an amazing side of life it was very entertaining very driven and just you could have come across anything and anyone and then I went from just doing the event days to then into the office and running the behind the scenes and it kind of all just progressed from there really so yeah I blame my dad (laughs) (laughs) if in doubt if in doubt before we come to that crossroads moment in your career that was triggered by COVID-19 you went through a really difficult negative experience on the event side at a former workplace where you were bullied in that workplace jazz now I've been bullied very severely outside of the workplace but so far touch wood I've never gone through what you went through in the workplace. So how did that bullying manifest and how did it impact your mental health? It's quite interesting because, I mean, I was bullied at high school, so I went through all that then and you kind of write it off. 
what I wrote it off as kids being kids it's whatever like I'll just move on even I never expected to see it in a workplace you kind of think everyone's grown up it's fine (laughs) cliques don't exist nothing exists like that in workplaces no (laughs) exactly it's like oh we're all friends we're all adults it's great (laughs) when in the reality it's totally different the workplace I was at and if I'm being honest it probably started from day one it was very clicker and I'm the type of person where I'll just kind of get on with it and I very much would try and befriend people or just like you know day-to-day life just get on with it if they played a role say in my role I'd be more than civil and be okay especially in a new job I feel like you make a lot of effort with someone and you want to be part of that and it was only a small team so it wasn't like there was hundreds of people to compete with and kind of swap between groups it was very much there were six or seven of us so if you felt isolated that was that and I'd say more than half of the group no it was probably half they were that clicky and they were that I don't want to say powerful but that's what they were they'd been there for a long time they'd got their selves that settled the way that their personalities were were very their way or no way and it sounds even worse but part of me because I was the two out of three or four of them were women and I'll hands up say women are bitches like it's awful and I think as a young girl at the time I think I was 20 I mean it was only a few years ago I was 24 and 25 I was the youngest in the office by a landslide and going in as a young girl and by no means did I feel young like I thought I was a qualified adult at this point but in that office because I was so young compared I do believe that they'd taken advantage of the fact I was young and naive to them and they just kind of pushed their power to make me feel uncomfortable and it sounds really petty but not including me in like going for coffees or going for lunch it was very much isolation things Mm, yeah mm. and it became quite isolating which I was lucky because there was other businesses in the building that I was very good friends with people. I had my own circle around this, but when you were in that office, like all the subtle things that mounted up and like, I distinctly remember I was organising one of the biggest events for them and I got really excited because I'd sold, I think it was like 150 more than the previous years and I was so excited about this and rightly so, yet my team just deflated that it was like oh well I did it this way or I did it that way and I'm like just be happy for me you know I've done something that in my life this is an achievement reflects well on them as well yeah yeah and I've, I've looked after all of your businesses in this because the department you had your own contacts and accounts to look after and I'd done my utmost to look after their accounts and make sure everyone was happy and yet my best wasn't good enough and it was like they were just constantly putting me down or they'd try and take the credit for something and like I remember a phone call and I was sat in the office and this client had contacted one of them and said something like oh we need to book a table like we've always had a table or something and I'd gone back and said look you weren't on the list so I can try my best and get you this 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 is what's left and anyway this client rang my colleague and she sat there in the office in front of everyone and I was sat there and she had this phone call and basically slated me down the phone to this client and I remember it so well because I sat there and I was like 
you're my colleague, you should have my back and you should be saying, look, there must have been a mistake, I'll talk to her, but yeah, we'll see what we can do. Not, oh, well, it's her mistake, she should never have done that, I'll have a word, I'll make sure something gets sorted, she shouldn't have done this, she shouldn't have done that. And that was, I think, a very pivotal moment where I was like, wow, this is not okay, like you're actively making negative comments to clients and companies that should know that we're a team. And that's in front of you. What were they doing behind your back? Exactly. And I mean, it sounds, <laughs> I look back and I'm like, I was always, I mean, in general, my work ethic is I'll be the first one in and I'll normally be the last one out. But in that office, I came to realise in myself that I was being the first person in that office and I was being the last to leave. And I was barely leaving that office because I didn't want them to be able to have chance to say things behind my back because that really concerned me. I knew how vicious they were behind other people's back. I heard conversations about so many people. So I know it was not just personal to me. And because I knew the conversations that were going on about other people, I was like, well, if I leave this office or if I'm not in here to know what's being said, what the hell are they saying about me? It could be worse kind of thing. When did you realise you needed to leave? And did it question your entire modus operandi around events and make you question whether you wanted to do it for the rest of your career? I think that office made me realise that that particular industry and events would be very hard and to be in an office with limited people and that industry would be very dog-eat-dog almost but then I think I realised that well I know know exactly when I realised I needed to leave because we were coming up to November and this is a couple of years ago and I'd been on a night out with a totally different group of people, all that worked for the same place, but different departments. And I got home and the next morning, I actually ended up having to get an ambulance to hospital. (laughs) And I feel so overdramatic about it now. But I'd had a really bad anxiety attack and I didn't know I was having it. And it's the first time for me that, I mean, I've suffered with anxiety previously and I've always had different ways of coping. But And if I remember rightly, the run up to it, I'd had a few big events, I'd done various things. The office was being very negative. It wasn't a nice place to be. And I kind of just ride on it and I take it on the chin. Whereas physically, it must have taken that toll on me. And I remember that morning I was at home on my own and I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing, like I could barely move. I thought I was having a heart attack and I think 111 thought I was. (laughs) So they sent an ambulance and I remember just being like, what is this? They did all the tests and the doctor came out and was like, it's an anxiety attack. Like, are you under a lot of stress at the minute? All this. And I was like, well, yes and no. Like, (laughs) I can do my job, but it's not my job giving me stress. And I didn't believe it. I was like, it can't be an anxiety attack. Like, what could make me feel that way? And that kind of made me a lot more aware of my surroundings and how I was feeling. And I actually went in that week. I think I did two days that week. I think it was a massive reality check. It just woke me up to how much it was impacting me and that everyone has a limit. And I had obviously Mm. reached mine. (laughs) Like I'd obviously got to a point where my body was actually telling me, no, you don't need to deal with this. I went to see the doctor and I got signed off for, I think, two weeks initially. And I've never had that in my life. Like I've never had sick days. Like I just don't. And for me to then be signed off with stress, essentially, because of a workplace that 
it wasn't even the job and I hands down I say it to everyone I loved my job role I adored my job role I adored a lot of the departments however that one particular one that was mine I'd never felt so distant and so isolated so then to have two weeks off thinking about it and I mean I'd already said about feeling like I have to be in the office all the time because I didn't want them to be talking about me behind my back and then I was out of it for two weeks and it was meant to help and it was meant to make me like de-stress when actually all that's running in my head is well what are they when saying going back yeah, yeah. like yeah. what are they saying how are they being and I actually spoke to the HR manager and various staff who knew that I was off with stress now a big thing for me was it was quite nice that various staff advised that look it's stress don't take it like you know we're not expecting you to be wrapped up in bed like you might not deal with it very well so for me the gym was a big thing and I actually had a trainer at the time and he was really good at saying look come down to the gym we'll do a class we'll have a coffee like you know we'll pick you up and so I'd kind of said to myself I was like look I'm not going to sit in my house and wallow in it because that would have made me worse anyway Um, I'd had almost permission, not that you need permission to deal with mental health like that. I'd had almost permission from my HR manager to be like, go out and do things, you know, that will de-stress you and make you feel better. So I remember one day I went to the gym and had a great workout and sat with my trainer having a coffee after, like you do, you know, and I was finally feeling like, I think it was coming after the first week, I think it was. So it was the start of the second week and it just so happened that my gym was near the workplace and the team who I'd say were the bullies they saw me and the next day I had a phone call from HR basically saying why were you out and I was like hang on a minute I was at the gym you just told me to yeah you just told me to go and de-stress <laughs> yeah I was like I was at the gym it wasn't like I was I think the hard part is obviously if you're signed off work people think you should be ill in bed dying and that's the reality of a lot of illnesses you're not like if I'd broken my leg you wouldn't be telling me to sit around like you'd still see me with the cast on and you'd be like oh how's your leg you wouldn't judge straight away and like basically like it was such a high school moment I can't like it makes me laugh thinking that they actually had the time to go and run to someone and be like oh I've seen Jasmine out and I'm like what have I done literally I am trying to make myself feel better and I can't even do that right in your eyes like and you don't have a clue what is going on to be fair I think they did I think they're very aware of what they do and how they do it they're very manipulative I guess but that instance I was like yeah if I can't even recover I guess why am I coming back into this office that's making me feel like this like it's not gonna get Mm. better there was no sign of it getting any better it was if anything it did get worse over the following months until I left in the so that incident was the November December I left in the February let's talk about that crossroads moment we mentioned earlier then which was the COVID-19 pandemic so tell me about Jasmine the events professional here why was it such a crossroads moment for you It was an interesting one because I'd already been made redundant from a job that I'd taken. That was a blur and I'd kind of made the plan. No, I'd made the plan. I was like, right, I'll go back to study and get my degree. And in the summer, once I've finished the year and summer starts up, I will be at, I'll work every event I possibly can. And I'll build up my agency role and just do hosting. And I'd started getting 
quite a few different because I'm lucky I've got contacts so I'd spoke to people got a few dates in the diary and I was really looking forward to kind of going back to just the hosting and being very ad hoc and I knew that I could create a summer of work where I was going and hosting and just having to the to the outside world I was having the best summer of my life because I was at I don't know the Grand Prix at the races and doing all the fun stuff and all the admin to go behind it but I was excited to do that and then COVID-19 came along and the first lockdown I didn't really think about much I think everyone was kind of just like getting on with how you get on with it but when it extended from sort of two three weeks to slightly longer I was then like well what do I do with my summer now like I've just lost x amount of income and these events aren't guaranteed like where do I go like how do I fill that void and for someone that's been like had been in events for so long prior to that like I didn't know what else to do my two comparisons would be the redundancy and planning it yes the redundancy was out of my control but you can control then how you react after that because that was how I saw it whereas the pandemic was so out of everyone's control and even if I tried to plan stuff there was just so much uncertainty that there was almost no point saying right okay well I'll book a date in when that event was probably going to get cancelled so there was no guarantee and it was such a risk and I know other businesses and other people that have really struggled from it especially in events and hospitality and I kind of took that opportunity I was very lucky one of my best friends is a bank manager and they were still open and she was like look if you need cash and we need staff come work in a bank so I ended up working in a bank which is so far from anything that I'd ever thought about but I was very lucky and in that time I was like well I need the money for a start don't we all but I needed that security for a bit and I think the pandemic made me realize and still is like I love events I've got a couple penciled in this year but am I being more proactive in getting more and building that up I am probably being hesitant on that because I've realized that anything could happen and the security isn't there for it it's not there so for me a big part of COVID-19 and the change in my career was more based on security and having that look events was fun and I get it and I could build a role from that however is it secure and stable enough to survive another pandemic no probably not Let's reflect then on this events journey. So what did the university degree teach you about yourself and what has the wider events journey taught you about yourself? The wider events. I love the events journey because I feel like once I go to host an event or go to a day, I'm such a more confident version of myself. Like on event days, you could be anyone and I'd stand there, have a conversation with you, make sure everything's okay and I don't know, the event life brings out a confidence in a different side of me, like a more bold, I guess. Like I could walk around a room with 300 people at an event and talk to every single one. Do that as a guest? No, I'd talk to probably one person. Um, <laughs> that, that'd be me. But there's something about events and I enjoyed the organisation and seeing something start and plan. So the biggest event that I worked on, and I did from start to finish, we had so much planning and it was a new event so it had never been done and to see that come from literally idea stages and proposals talking trying to get everyone on board with a risk like a really big risk was 
so exciting to then see it come to fruition and it ended up being a very widely publicized event because of the scale of it and it was really like I can't explain the sort of I remember the first one of it and I cried at the end because I was like this was me like I did that I put this event together and my marketing manager was like why are you crying I was like it's happy like I'm just so proud that I've put something together that so many people told me it couldn't be done or you had so many red tape so much red tape sorry in place and the events world is so I wouldn't class myself as a creative but actually when I look at some of the events and things that I've done it brings out that side of me and once I see it come to fruition and the end of it my events life almost is my creative side that's how I get excited even all the rubbish paperwork <laughs> like the <laughs> amount of organization and spreadsheets and it's annoying but it's great but then to go back into a change and like starting studying I mean events life I was used to working 40 50 60 hours a week and then I went to studying and they think 12 hours of lectures is full time and oh my gosh <laughs> like I went crazy and I'll happen I think my family are very glad it's nearly over but I kind of dropped so quickly into being like well what do I do with all my time like and who am I outside of events like and that sounds like such a strange thing now to look back on and be like well events had been my life like I'd worked so much I had friends that were like why aren't you free on a weekend I'm working and they didn't get it but that was just what I was doing and then I don't want to say I've found a work-life balance because I feel like I haven't but I've now with studying and working part-time alongside that like I've found that there's more to life than work (laughs) surprisingly and I'm very lucky in the sense that like okay I'm not a massive fan of studying but I'm doing it I'm getting it done and I know there's a purpose to getting it done and I've now explored different industries I've worked in a bank I'm now in a, a private practice like I'm seeing a whole different side that had the pandemic come along and kind of knocked that off I don't think I'd have probably ever seen We've talked about your events journey, Jazz. I want to dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life in Huddersfield, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Jasmine we meet here? Uh, Well, I feel like I was very, I'd say I was quite a young, young person. I was very naive, I think, still to this day. In high school and college, to be fair, I think I was a very shy didn't really speak to many people totally different to the events person you see at high school I really didn't speak to anyone whereas then now I do I mean high school I hated every second of it I was bullied for the most part in fact for all of it college I think I started to come into my own a little bit and I befriended people that I wouldn't have like I never had that opportunity at school to kind of befriend and I'm still friends with most of the people from like my core group anyway high school was just I mean I was bullied through it it was a roller coaster I didn't know what to what to do with myself really I guess I was very lucky I had my big brother (laughs) on hand I distinctly remember one of the first years and so Charlie's two years older than me and a group of lads were bullying me and they were saying awful things I'm naturally a ginger so we can all imagine how high school went and 
I remember because me and my brother would walk home, we'd meet and walk home together, <laughs> which was very sweet. Wouldn't imagine that now. And I must have been crying or I must have been like, I must have said something and basically said how I felt and that I was being bullied and that I wasn't happy. And he was like, well, who is it? And I'd said it was a group of guys. And I distinctly remember my brother really playing the big brother act. That was a, a great moment for me. And I still remember it so well. And having someone like him to look after me at high school was great. But then I remember with him being two years older than me, as soon as he left high school, and I'm not saying it got worse, but it continued, but I didn't have that same... That's, you didn't have the protection. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. God, he's going to hate me saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I didn't have that. And for me, that was then the last couple of years were really hard. And in year nine, the bullying at one point got so bad, like my mum and dad kept me off school because I was that upset and it was that, it just wasn't going away. And the interesting part of that is that I distinctly remember being at my mum, my mum's a teacher, so she took me to her school and the staff from my school basically threatened mum and dad and were like, you're taking your child out of school. Like at the time, I think it was Asbers. I don't even know if they do them anymore. Um, <laughs> and they were like, you need to bring your daughter back to school, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, why would we put our daughter in a place that she's not safe, like that she's not feeling okay? And I'm really grateful that my parents were, they were very supportive. My brother was. It was for quite a young person to go through bullying at school. No one should ever have to go through that. And for the school to essentially be like, well, she needs to be in school, regardless of whether she feels safe or not, I think was very hard to deal with. Actively wanting someone to be in a bad place and... I think I ended up like moving forms and getting various things, but I don't know if anyone else felt the same, but kids are really brutal and mm. it doesn't matter in a school whether it's happening in the classroom. Yes, you can move classes, but the playground's still the playground and you can't run away from it. So to go through that side of it and then college was very much a bit of freedom. Like I just thought, yeah, I'm going to go and you know I don't have to see those people ever again like I don't have to deal with that and yeah befriended a really good group that like I say I'm still friends with some of them now and I feel like the change of going from a very toxic small school to then widening out and going and seeing different people and befriending them and I think that was the first time that I really realised and at college it was quite hard anyway because everyone was partying, everyone was, I kind of wanted to be a bit of everything I think because I'd been bullied, I then wanted to be friends with everyone. Like I wanted Same. to be at yeah, everything yeah. and I was like, I don't think that was the best way to go about it. So like I'd go to house parties and I'd go and do whatever and like my parents never had that with my brother because... Charlie was playing sport he was very much didn't drink and yeah I was younger and I was like I'm gonna go drink because that's what my new friends are doing so I probably put myself in a few tricky situations myself and I was very much I can say it now because I'm an adult and I was like I was the rebel of our little family and I just kind of wanted to go out and I didn't care because I'd been hurt so much in high school and been so put down because of the bullying and I felt like I didn't have any friends like going to then having friends I think I just threw myself into everything you were rebelling against the previous version of yourself because you didn't want to be like that you wanted to be something else yeah, yeah I get you. yeah I'd gone from being so shy and retiring and not speaking to 
anyone and trying to avoid people to then throwing myself into it and probably not making the wisest decisions and that's okay but I think that came with a lot of without knowing it at the time a lot of mental health experiences in the sense that I felt a bit lost because I was like who am I and trying to find that with different groups of friends and different things that are going on and that was a mental health experience without realizing at the time and it was a bit of a roller coaster and I think for me that was a moment I think it was my second year of college where I was like whoa what am I doing like everything's kind of getting to me who do I talk to where do I go like what do I want next and having to figure that out and still not doing so so then I got a flight to New Zealand at 18 <laughs> and that's that's how I did it I just went wow just went okay. away that is a big extreme yeah that's a big extreme <laughs> I want to talk about the Vent article you wrote, which was, like you said in the intro, over two years ago now. And it was in August 2020 you wrote it. It was called Talking Really Does Help. So why did you want to write it? And tell me about the issues it explores. I think I chose to write it because it was the start of the pandemic the year before, wasn't it? Yeah, because this was 2020. So 2019, Mm -hmm. I'd gone through everything and the run-up to this article I'd kind of been on my own journey of obviously being locked down you get to thinking you get to like I kind of had had a chance to process everything that had happened at the workplace and like there was something when it was Caroline Flack's death that triggered me to then share how I'd been made to feel I put a post on Facebook which I'd never really spoken about it, my emotions that much, not even to my friend, like I'd kind of kept how bad I felt through that time to myself because I, well, I don't know why really I did it because I think it's, you should always talk, (laughs) but I'd realised from that post, so I'd shared and I'd said exactly how I felt. And I had people that I was really close to come and be like, I didn't realise you were feeling that way. Like, I'm really sorry like you should have told me and this sort of thing and I was like to me at the time a massive part was and I said it to most my friends and I didn't want to ask for help because I wasn't ready to accept that I was struggling and I wasn't ready to say this workplace and this event is making me feel as bad as I felt because then it would become real so for me the best thing that I could have asked for and I know I had a great support network around that. Did I ask them for help? No. Did they help? Yes. Because instead of them, every time I saw them being like, are you okay? How's everything going? It was kind of an escape to then just be normal. And kind of, we started climbing with one of my friends. Like we'd go to football matches. You know, we'd embrace just doing things, which for me, we were doing things that I'd enjoy. So outside of the workplace, I felt okay and you know I could forget what was going on at work so I didn't feel the need to talk to someone explicitly about what was happening people were aware because I'd mentioned in passing or I'd mentioned you know I'm sick of this or but to the extent of actually me saying I feel in a very dark place because of this I didn't say that probably should have done because as much as the good things that were going on and how distracted I guess I was in having a good 
stable support outside of work and like living my own life and enjoying not being in work maybe it would have helped to talk to my friends and family that bit more about how bad I was feeling in work. A common theme in the article Jazz is this idea of putting others over yourself almost to the extreme almost to the detriment of your own mental health you say I've only embraced learning about myself in the last 12 months I've been a big supporter of mental health awareness for years but sadly I've even sacrificed my own in my desire to support others and then you go on to say supporting my friends and family is a huge part of who I am I felt that if I wasn't holding myself together I won't say this way right there then because I have to put (laughs) explicit on this podcast then why would they trust me to support them how can someone who is emotional and struggling with her own experiences be able to help anyone else I would think at any point was that irrational thinking justified it sounds like quite an irrational thought to believe that people would think that you're not capable just because you have issues like they do yeah I think the more I've gone the more I have seen and the more that you sort of look at it it's such an irrational thought like everyone has feelings and the sooner that you embrace that and acknowledge that everyone has bad days everyone has emotions it's inevitable it's just how you communicate that I guess and like for me and I do I'm still I am very much still in that mindset at some points, but I am making progress into coming out of that and stopping myself from feeling that way because at the end of the day, the people that are around you and the people that you trust enough to have those conversations with, and from my part on that sentence, like they talk to me and they trust me with their feelings and how they're going through stuff. So why would I not be able to share that? Which I am getting better at I think a key thing for me like I've started kind of being like oh can I have this like can I talk to you and I'll actually say it in that sense like and actually me just saying look can I have like I want to talk to you about something I then have opened that floodgate and if someone kind of says oh yeah whatever and you then start that conversation it's a better feeling for me knowing that I've almost asked like I've just been like oh I need to have a conversation (laughs) which no one likes a message being like can I talk about something but if I can ask someone if I can have a chat or I'll be like oh are you free for a phone call like I'd rather kind of set that so that I know that right okay it's almost my defense mechanism like I'm like I'm saying it because if I just started that conversation I almost wouldn't start that conversation whereas if I message someone I'm like oh I want to talk to you about something the conversation has to happen because they'll be like, well, what do you want to talk about? And I'll be like, oh yeah, it was this. Do people check in with you as much as you do with them? Yes, definitely now. Like I feel like over the last few years, like everyone, you all go through different friendship groups and things. I've had a very brilliant group of friends and family for the last couple of years. And I've noticed it probably more since this article and like since you actually think about it when you think about something you start noticing it and I'm very grateful for a a very good bunch of friends that check in regularly with each other like it's a very nice relationship in the sense that none of us are pushy in that sense but every so often if you've not spoke for a while I can guarantee you that they'll message and be like oh how's things maybe not explicitly are you okay but we check in and just like oh it's been a while you okay it's nice and I don't feel like there's any pressure around it either like I'm aware that the small friendship group I've got at the minute are very two-sided relationships which is exactly what it should be 
just before the pandemic and and while everything was going on at work I did have a friend who was very much one-sided and everything that was going on at work and she knew a lot of it and it was very hard to be friends with someone that for the most part didn't care how I was or what was going on regardless of how how much she tried and I had looked after her and I'd I could give you numerous times where I looked after her and made sure she was okay and it just wasn't reciprocated however I think everything and the pandemic and being isolated from people it made you realize and you're like life's too short to have those sort of relationships and your circle should be two-sided and that actually the best thing that I've taken advice is so my dad and his friend I occasionally go for beers to the pub with them and it's great I love going to the pub with my dad and I remember them saying and I'd had a bit of an argument with this friend who and they kind of said they were like look it doesn't matter as you get older you will realize that it doesn't matter how many friends you've got it doesn't matter like how many or whether you're doing everything with them all the time you'll get to a point where there'll be sort of one or two friends maybe three that you know regardless you can rely on and they can rely on you and nothing else matters like it doesn't matter how long and I remember sitting there listening to my dad and his friend saying this and I was like you're right like you're 100% right and this was two three years ago and I've taken that on board and I honestly like if any of my friends are listening this is not to get (laughs) big-headed I adore all of them I couldn't be more grateful for my group of friends like I really couldn't and they've embraced like I remember sending them that article I remember sending the vent the help article and the friend that I'd mentioned in that that I'd had a conversation with that sparked me to you know be like talk it's all okay they've supported me on my journey probably more than they know more than we actively give them credit for but we've all then had conversations that I don't know maybe we might not have done Mm -hmm. but I'm very grateful to have people that a want to have an understanding of mental health and are all okay to talk about it which I think is really good (laughs) after the vent article self-awareness is something you were keen to speak about and you kind of already touched on it a little bit here but you wanted to speak about the understanding that you've had in what triggers your down days and what helps you come out of them so tell me about both I think I'm still learning triggers into sort of what makes a down day I'm getting slightly better with it like you can see I'm so aware that if I feel my anxiety rising I kind of know that I'm going to have a bad day soon. (laughs) Like a key thing for me is I pick my skin around my nails really badly when I'm anxious. And if I've noticed myself doing that more, I'm like, right, what's going on? I need to snap out of it. I need to address what I'm feeling. I think triggers is such a hard one for down days though, because I think unless you explicitly have something that you can see that is the same and consistent to have that reaction, which occasionally I do like it might be certain like I won't go to one gym (laughs) because I don't want to go there like little things where you can spot it but like I'll kind of know if I wake up just feeling very drowsy like I am a morning person so if I wake up and I'm not feeling great I'm like oh right I need to I don't know go to the gym today or I need to just try and lift that my favorite thing is just in the car putting on oh my god what's the song there's a song that I listen to all the time and it just makes me happy. 
some music like if I'm feeling out of it I'll just find songs that I know are upbeat positive like will keep me going over the last couple of years I guess the best thing that's helped me kind of I say I think accept how I'm feeling but give me that time and space is like going out hiking and actually being outside like I love being outside and actually actively getting it's so hard to get out the house when you're feeling crap but then I know as soon as I do it and I start on that walk I'll come back feeling better whether that's Mm. a little bit better or I've then had chance you know to think things over in my head and I've got around it enough to control how I'm feeling then that's a bonus or even just I mean a big thing for me is just seeing friends like I used to be very guilty of when I was feeling bad cancelling plans and like bailing I was really bad at that but then I've come to realize like over the last few years I'm like actually yes okay I might not feel like going and there is a fine line don't get me wrong if you're not feeling up to something don't go but there's a very fine line where I have to regulate myself and be like right am I feeling this bad and I don't feel capable of going because it's in my head or am I genuinely not feeling okay so I find that balance I'm like right no it's in my head I just need to go and once I get out the door once I go and meet my friend and kind of just get on with it I do feel better and then you're doing something that you like and you're not sat wallowing in your own thoughts you spoke about climbing and hiking there and your relationship with your comfort zone has been a theme that's run throughout this interview jazz so tell me about why you love climbing and hiking so much and this national three peaks challenge that you did last year and i believe you're doing another one this year right how's that helped you mentally um some may say it's tested it um in fact it's definitely (laughs) tested it climbing i kind of fell into a friend not literally that was a really bad line to say about climbing um i haven't fallen off yet (laughs) but climbing for me being quite active and I used to horse ride as a kid in fact up until being an adult and I had a bad fall and it kind of knocked my confidence with that so I I kind of left horse riding on the back burner and I felt like I needed to find something that I still got a bit of a kick from like I got a bit of an adrenaline rush and I could really take on and because I'll be the first and I say it to everyone I'm not going anywhere near any ball sport anything like that because mainly because my brother's good at every sport and I don't want to (laughs) be in that so I just take myself out the ring I'm like you can have balls and I'll do my own thing I'll throw myself up a mountain so climbing for me when I found it it was more the boulder inside and I just loved it like I can't explain like it's active obviously like my body aches after a good couple of hours doing it but for me the climbing wasn't just about the physical side like I actually really enjoyed the fact that you are essentially problem solving because you have to get from the bottom to the top and then back down again just on the same colour or get up there and then figure out how the heck you're going to get down because it's high (laughs) Um, you had to actually be thinking and doing and for me that was a very I actually started more so while I was at the workplace that all the bullying happened so I'd then come out of it and some sports some sports for me aren't enough to keep me mentally busy and occupied and this is no offense to anyone that plays football but you can just kick a ball and for me that didn't take 
my mind away from things. So climbing, because I had to be thinking about where I was going, how I was going to get up, how I was going to get down. My mind was busy, my body was busy. So I was just in the moment and enjoying what it was. So it was my like release and my get out. So I just fell in love with that. And then hiking, I kind of, I don't know, I did Snowden in 2017 and it was the best day out. No, 2018. And it was a really amazing feeling getting to the top of a mountain and then getting back down (laughs) and that kind of started me and me and Natalie were we did Snowden had a great day and then we were gonna do Scarfell Pike and this is when I realized that hiking mountains actually is pushing me so I went into Snowden blind cracked on with it it was great but we went up to do Scarfell Pike and I've started being a bit more open about this given that I'm doing more mountains and it's quite nerve-wracking but the first time we went to go and do Scarfell Pike I didn't even make it about a quarter of the way up I had a full-on anxiety attack just purely at the thought of climbing a mountain and coming back down which terrified me I'll be honest I was like why am I so bothered like Scarfell Pike's a lot smaller than Snowden and I did Snowden so where's my issue here but it's that questioning your capabilities and the you know no matter what the mountain is it's still a decent trek and that made me realize that okay doing mountains yes it's a great feeling when you do it but I am achieving something and in my mind like I mean we did the national three last summer and two weeks before we were like we'll go do Scarfell Pike in my head I was like well the last time I didn't even do Scarfell Pike like I had an anxiety attack what the hell am I going to do here like I'm not going to make it up and Natalie was great and we worked very well together and I did it the two weeks before and I actually I think I got to the top and it was very overwhelming for me that mountain because I was like I didn't do this three years ago like I could not physically do this and now I've done it and then two weeks later we did the national three peaks in less than 24 hours and that was such a huge achievement I was like I couldn't even do one two years ago and now I've done three in 23 hours and 13 minutes on little to no sleep with just me and Natalie climbing mountains like for the hell of it and I mean I've seen my friends going to running and doing whatever and I'm not a runner I don't see the pleasure in running but the only thing I can kind of compare it to I imagine is when people are finishing a marathon and they've you know they feel elated that they've just completed something and for me the national three peaks more so like finishing that was huge I remember Charlie likes to remind me that an hour in, an hour in, up Ben Nevis, I was messaging him like, I can't do this. Like, what on earth am I doing? Like, why have I decided to take on three mountains in 24 hours, the biggest in the UK? Am I crazy? The answer is yes. <laughs> but he was like, you were struggling at the start, but you did it and you've overcome that. And for me, that was massive. Last year, we did just, you know, I feel like me and Natalie just cracked on and got on with it. Whereas this year there's a big group of us and at this point it's less than two weeks away and we'll be doing five peaks. So we've done the national three, so they're included. And then we have to get a ferry over to Ireland and do two in Ireland, all in 48 hours. So we're not making it easy for ourselves. But for me, like this year, I think because I've already set my bar, I know we can do the National Three Peaks in less than 24 hours. So that means we have to do this in less than 48 hours. And I've almost set the precedence for myself and I'm feeling the pressure 
So I think I'm more anxious this time and I am pushing myself more. I think it's making me realise that, do you know what? You're doing it. The only person putting all this pressure on it is me. Yes, the team are. Like, we all want to finish it and we all want to do it in a good time. But realistically, the only person making myself feel anxious about it is me. I can just get on with it and I know I can do it because I did it last year. The side of, like, the hiking and why I'm doing it is because, to me... It will be a physical challenge, 100%. Like, five mountains in 48 hours is not normal. But for me, it's the mental side. Like, actually pushing myself to give myself that, you know, you can do this. Like, you can feel stressed about a situation. You can go into it, but you can learn your limits. And why can't you walk up a mountain? Why are you telling yourself that you can't? So I think it's pushing me into taking on a bit more and not backing away from it because my head's telling me not to before we talk about the final part of your journey jazz one big positive of your mental health has been the arrival of your niece and nephew into the world so how do they help your mental health and in a different way to multiple mountains and peaks challenge you too oh they are just adorable i remember i mean i was the first person to see my niece outside of my brother and his partner And I remember being so excited to go into the room and I do not have a maternal bone in my body. All my mates know this. I'm just far, far, far from being child friendly. But there's something, I don't know, my niece just completely changed everyone, my whole family's world. Like she's, she's crazy. Like she is currently a terrible three, but we have so much fun. And like then my nephew arrived and he's, Oh, he's just such a happy... He's nine months old now? No, he's 11 months. Oh, my gosh, I got that wrong. He's 11 months old. And, like, everyone that knows him and everyone will be like, oh, my God, he's such a happy baby. Like, he's always got a smile on his face. And I'm very... I don't know. Like, Flossie was exciting and she was the first baby. And then there's Finian, who is just adorable. And now that I'm seeing, like, their personalities, it's just so nice to see and to be around. And, like, my niece will come. The only time I don't like her is when she has a sleepover and she wakes me up at, like, 6am. That's not okay. But she's just full of, like... Kids say the craziest things, and I love it. But me and her will be sat having a conversation, and I'm like, how do you know all this? You're three. You're just testing me. And I love it. She's so creative, like... I enjoy spending time with them because in their eyes, the world's so innocent. They know nothing. They don't have to deal with the stress. And through everything that's happened in the last three, four years, they've just been so naive and, you know, ignorance is bliss, I guess. And as an adult, you can't check out. But I went home from various places and she's excited to see you. And like, I came back from a hike the other week and she was like, oh, Auntie Jazz, I've missed you. I'm like, I didn't know you were here, but okay. And I love it. Like, she just makes you feel... And I mean, she'll tell you. I remember one morning, I must have not slept very well or been out the night before or something. And she was like, you look tired or you look bad. I'm like, thanks. (laughs) But then on the other side of it, she'll be like, I remember, and I've got a video and it is the cutest video. She just looked at me in this video and then she she played with my hair and went, you have nice hair. And I was like, 
I love you. Like, thank you. <laughs> like, they just know. Like, they can say things and pick you up. And, like, seeing my brother with them and seeing my dad with them, seeing that bond with someone that, like, she's so young and innocent and loving life. And she makes you, like, I check out. When I'm with them, my phone's away. Like, I play like I go into well I'm just gonna be a kid too like (laughs) I'll get the toys out and I'll play and like she facetimed us actually in when we were doing the three peaks between two mountains I got a facetime and she was just like so where are you and why are you climbing mountains like why would you do that kind of stuff I'm thinking you're too and I love it like you're questioning why I'm doing this and she'd just be like oh can I come next time I'm like yeah why not crack on everything's so exciting for her and it makes you then feel excited and I never expected that like everyone knows I think I've looked after them once on my own because I don't feel like I'm a responsible adult to look after children so I kind of avoid that but I think that's me knowing my limits in the sense that I'd be way too paranoid about them kids running around hurting themselves or something on my watch so I'd rather not deal with that like I'll be an auntie but with other people around thanks so that I can enjoy my time with them and not be stressing (laughs) (laughs) the final part of your mental health journey you want to discuss jazz was grief and the death of your granddad in August 2021 so tell me first about the man he was and your relationship with him oh god I'm already tearing up um granddad like I don't even know where to start he was oh my god he was such an amazing person Charlie spoke at his funeral and he did a lovely speech about everything and do you know what a big and it's kind of a theme to everything that's helped me and that you know that I value and my granddad just invested time in you and built the relationship and he had that about him but he had it with everyone it wasn't just a one thing like it wasn't just family everyone he met he invested that time in and he valued the conversation and you could tell that he really he cared and he wanted to know more he was curious he was he was such a lovely person like I can't even think of anything bad about him obviously I'm biased but I remember as kids like he was so creative so he was an architect and most summers like his garage would be full of arts and crafts and boxes and he'd then play in the garden with me my cousins my brother and we'd be building and painting things out of cardboard and you know we just had valuable memories with him because we spent time like he wanted you to be the best you could be and he'd support you and he instead of it he could very easily have just been like oh I'm the granddad so I'll just sit and watch you guys but he joined in he instigated stuff like I mean we still to this day so he gave everyone wheelbarrow rides around the garden (laughs) to the point where he actually it was last April the April before he passed and I've got a beautiful picture of him pushing my niece round and it's amazing the things that have gone through the generations and he's someone that I think everyone in my family idolise and it yeah I don't know it just makes me smile thinking about who he is and that relationship. Mm. You said to me 
when he died, you didn't know how you'd react to losing him. Why did you think that? Um, so I've been fairly lucky and I've not really lost many people close to me. I had lost my other grandparents two, three years prior. Now, my other grandparents didn't have quite as much impact on me. And the reason for that is because they didn't put that time in. So I didn't have a massive relationship with them. So therefore, yes, their loss was sad and it was a shock. But did I grieve for them? Because I didn't have the relationship with them, like having the conversations about them and knowing who they are, that doesn't affect me. And that doesn't, yes, I'm sad that they passed, obviously, I'm not awful, but for the same effect, I wasn't close enough to them to be absolutely heartbroken and crying my eyes out about it. I was very aware that we all had such a big relationship with my granddad and the thought of losing him was terrifying. And it was hard because we did see him deteriorate. Um, Oh God. (laughs) And he, like you anticipate losing someone and that's so hard. Sorry. Um, so I, yeah, like I'd kind of, I didn't know if, if it was hurt to me, if it was hurting so much, the thought of losing him when he was still here, I didn't know how I was going to be when we lost him because it had already hurt me. So could it get worse? Does it get worse? Like there were so many unknowns and I hadn't had that before. Like I hadn't had that. That journey yeah. of grief basically. And yeah. To have a relationship with someone. And I guess it is hard. It's like, I almost had started the grieving process before we'd even lost him, which mm. I think many of my family did. You would naturally do that as well because you can see the end point, can't you? So you, your, your mind's preparing you for what's going to happen. It's almost yeah. like a fail safe, but nothing can really yeah. prepare and you, I can think it? I'd And as well, I kind of thought in the run-up, I was like, well, I've got upset about it. This is it. This must be my grief. Like, this is... It's, it's going to be easy after this. Like, it's inevitable. But because you'd never had that before and grief does play in different things. I'm And I'm not saying, I probably did grieve for my other grandparents, but it was a very different way. And because it was a surprise and I was sad about it, but the grief for them was so, so different to the grief for granddad. And I lost a friend in 2019, no, 2018. And that was a surprise and... I had had a very good relationship with that friend and I got prob and this sounds really awful, I probably got slightly more upset about that friend and losing her than I did my other grandparents because I'd had such a good relationship with her and again that was a very brief probably a couple of weeks grieving time I guess and then this was another level on top of that like having to someone that I've spent my whole life with and I think I was talking to someone the other day and it was like well I guess the harder you grieve is because it shows the more you've been loved like and that's a really cheesy line but it's damn true like I can't deny that 
at the time that your granddad passed away, you also had a friend's wedding. So you were stuck between this celebration of life on the one hand and the end of life and new life to come with the wedding and all the things that comes with that. So how did that affect your grief? There was everything all going on. So we were very lucky that my lovely nephew, Finian, was born the week before my granddad passed. And that is a moment that is so magical. It was bizarre because he was born and we knew granddad was dying, but they got to meet and that was incredible. Part of me, I'm like, granddad held on just to meet him. Um, And then I had the wedding and I miss my best friend's Hindu because granddad was very poorly and I just couldn't face going. I had to sacrifice going on my best friend's Hindu because I wanted to spend time with my family and I'm very glad that my friends all fully supported that. They were all very, you know, I don't think you can't support that. Like it's a bit of a bit of a big thing. So I sacrificed what was meant to be a really happy time and I was so looking forward to the Hindu. And that's a memory that I'll never get back with my best friend. But then at the same time, I had moments in the last few weeks with my granddad that I also would have never got back. And then to go on and have the wedding, I think the wedding was the week before the funeral in the end and so at this point I mean our family had said don't put anything on social media so apart from the people who had actively had conversations with no one really knew granddad had passed and the morning of the wedding was the first time I'd seen my friend and the bridesmaids and the family who they didn't know that he'd passed. My best friend did because I'd told her and the rest of them on that morning, they were like, oh, how are you? They all knew I hadn't been on the Hindu. So then I was faced with conversations that were like, oh, how's your granddad? And I'm sat there going, he's passed. <laughs> and having to have those conversations on what is a very amazing day for someone, it's... You don't want to ruin it, do you? You don't want to dampen the mood, but you have to tell the yeah, truth. Yeah, exactly. Can't, like, can't I can't lie. sit there and be like, oh, he's but like, you know, we're okay. <laughs> Like, it's fine. <laughs> actually, on Wednesday, you'll see me say that I'm at a funeral. Probably not wise. So, and I think they'll all say, like, I just kind of said, look, he's passed and, you know, today's today. And we did have a lovely day and it was almost like for a day we could just forget. And I very much put myself in the, well, today is the wedding. Today is about this. Like, it was so lovely to have their friends and family because I know Emily and Elliot and all their family very well and they knew that Grandad wasn't well and they knew all of that and they were so lovely about it and you know it was nice to be so included in their day anyway so it was nice because they were kind of like look we know it's a lot going on if you get upset or whatever if you you know want to leave early and blah 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 and they were so supportive and it made it kind of more special because I was like do you know what yeah and I know he'd have wanted me to be at the wedding and it was surreal, but also at the same time, being a, in something that was so full of love at quite a vulnerable time was probably the best place to be. One thing you said you found difficult when it comes to this grief is speaking to your grandma about it because you wanted to support her, but you also didn't want to make her upset by talking about him in her presence. However, from my point of view, I'm sure she would enjoy keeping his memory alive and sharing those happy memories. Is that your comparison mindset sort of creeping back in, do you think? Yeah, I think it probably is because I feel like, I mean, it was a couple of weeks ago I went round and she was saying she'd got out a briefcase 
like a really old school briefcase and she was like it's all your granddad's architecture stuff and like his drawing and his compasses and all this stuff and it was so lovely to go through it and to see part of me I was like well it had been nice to go through it with him but sitting and being able to have that conversation with grandma was so beautiful and I think I hold off because it's a bit like if I bring him up and if she was say having a good day and she was fine and maybe she hadn't thought about the fact he's not here or whatever I feel like me bringing him up would maybe trigger her then to be like realizing he's gone again and maybe be sad to the same extent like you said like I do think she wants to keep that alive and she was here for the jubilee weekend and she was sat talking to our neighbours about him and they were talking about lovely memories and you could see her smiling about it and I think that actually made me realise that maybe I do need to speak you know even if it's sad that he's not here talking about all the other things is remembering him and remembering all the good times and and stories and the jokes and everything else yeah yeah, you you? and like it was after he'd passed and we were planning all the photographs for the funeral and there's so many amazing photographs. I'm a very photo person. Like I started getting loads of them printed out and actually having them around my house and there's some amazing ones of my granddad. Like they're so good. And to me, I keep saying to grandma and I need to go around and do it. They've got millions of photos. So I think I got my love of printing photographs from my granddad <laughs> there you go like, my granddad was <laughs> grandma laughs because she's like there's so many and they're all in order and he's it's his handwriting that's like on all the labels and it's so funny because that's exactly how I am so I know like I keep <laughs> saying I'll go around and look through them all and I think it'd take me about a year but like there's that many but I've been putting that off because I don't know if grandma wants to go through those photos yet whereas in reality part of me I think I'm not ready to see all that like I don't know if like I can say I think it was Easter Easter used to be huge in our family still is but the first Easter without him hit me more and like I woke up and I was like well he's not there and like it's little things that you don't expect like I mean I never knew what grief would feel like and I think the first few months after I don't think I was I mean I was upset definitely but there wasn't anything in particular like Christmas didn't really bother me in the sense that it was the first Christmas without him that didn't get me Valentine's Day got me which sounds really (laughs) so odd but my granddad every year from when I can remember my granddad without a doubt would send me and my cousin a Valentine's card and even when I moved away and I've lived away I'd get either a text or a proper card and he'd be really creative with it every year like he'd say something different in it he'd put like glitter in the envelope like it was so adorable and without realizing like I kind of took that for granted for definite while he was here because I kind of laughed at it it was a bit of a personal joke and I'd be like oh my secret admirer sent me a um sent me a valentine's again and this year to not get that like wow that hurt and that was for me that was like a big moment in being like yeah okay he's gone this is grief and then I know my dad his first birthday without him like everyone talks about these first and I don't I never thought it'd be a thing like I just thought yeah but life goes on like grandma always does Easter and I know Easter was hard for her because he wasn't there and 
we still made it special like we still got the kids around we did everything like I think the whole family went which was really nice it's almost like these first people are almost a bit awkward because what do you do you like do you address that it's the first without him do you say oh this is that are you meant to have that conversation but then at the same time how long do you keep doing that that's not me saying that we're going to forget him Mm. but do you mark every single milestone that he's not seen it's been 10 months now since your granddad passed jazz so if he was listening to this and given all you've achieved and all the hard work you've done on your mental health what would you say to him and what do you think he'd say to you yeah probably take less maybe take less pictures Um, (laughs) stop printing them out (laughs) do you know what that that's so hard because what I'd say to him would I don't know there's so I'd say everything I'd say so much (laughs) See, I think because he was so poorly towards the end, we were lucky and we got some time to kind of say what you wanted to say. I don't think I took advantage of that. So I think if I was to see him now, I'd be like, I hope I'm, you know, making you proud and that thank you. Just like, thank you for everything, for who you are and who he helped me become and tell him that I'm crazy and doing five peaks and you thought I was crazy doing three, so sorry. <laughs> I'd apologise for adding two more mountains <laughs> on. And I think he'd say, like, <laughs> I know Grandad was so, and Grandad was someone that you could go to and have a conversation. And I remember going to him and telling him that I was leaving the workplace that was giving me stress. And I remember telling him about, like, when I was starting university and I remember saying to him, I was like, I'm going back to study I'm going to get a degree and I know that he knew how hard I was finding studying and I've still got a year left so part of me I know that he'd probably sit me down and have a conversation and be like right you've got a year left we're so proud of you like keep going yeah I think he'd just be incredibly supportive and also tell me I'm slightly crazy for going up mountains but he'd he'd back me 100% and he'd say keep doing it keep finding my mountains let's reflect then on your mental health journey jazz so what has it taught you about yourself and if you could go back and talk to the jasmine who was getting bullied in school or the jasmine who was about to go back to university in her late 20s or the jasmine who was putting everyone else above her own mental health or the jasmine in the midst of grieving for her granddad, what would you say to her knowing what um, you do now? I'd say to my younger self, I'd be like, get through it. You can get through it and you don't need to deal with that sort of person and just remember what this is like for later and address it. I think I just have, and I do it more regularly. It's reminding yourself that, you know, you're only human and you can only do so much. And I'm a very big person. I'm a very firm believer of if it's not making you happy, why are you doing it? If you're not getting something back out of it that's, you know, feeding into what you value or respect or what you want to achieve, then why are you doing it? And question it. And I think when I was younger, I probably didn't ask enough questions. So ask questions, make that happen, like understand and continually trying to learn about yourself and others, not just, you know, that one simple mindset, because I think that helps everyone on the way. 
We've come to our final topic of conversation, Jazz, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So, firstly, how is your mental health? Do you know, I think other than coming up to a really big challenge, I'm in a better place and I'm doing okay. I know I'm anxious, but I feel like it's a... I'm anxious to do a challenge, not a general anxious like I've got the purpose as to why I'm anxious and when it's done I'm hoping I'll be way better I'll feel very elated (laughs) and then what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mental health I'd like to be like yesterday it just happened like really recently Um, (laughs) but I'd probably say more self-aware 100% I feel like this is really old but like 25, 26, I feel like actually being aware and knowledgeable that that, okay, yes, I can tell you that's what it is. Yeah, only a few years ago. Tell me then about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back on it, did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders on the one hand? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant oh, and normal I think to the do? first conversation was probably when I was 17, second year of college. And I remember I went through like a very crazy stage, I think. And I'd been going out drinking, doing whatever. I was just not being very sensible. And something had happened. And then college were basically like, and that's a story for another day that someone at college because it was coming up to exams they were like you need to talk to someone you're not yourself kind of thing I hated that conversation I feel like because I'd been almost forced to have that conversation I felt like it was huge it was terrifying it was awful and I I was kind of being made to feel something that I didn't necessarily think it was so that was probably my first conversation about my own mental health for definite but then the first conversation that I think was probably easy was probably a couple of years ago when I was going through things and it was to friends and family and saying how that was. What is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health related but it doesn't exclusively I was about to reach for it because I've got it literally right next to me. The subtle art of not giving a I won't say it. (laughs) That's come up a few times. That's come up a few times. The Chimp Paradox. I think I'm tied between them two. I like to read but them two books the chimp paradox i think is the logic side and the theory i guess like that is more way more theory based you're learning about that whereas the subtle art of i just he writes it so day-to-day life and so simple and i don't know i feel like every time i've picked up that book to start a chapter it's been so relatable to part of my life that i'm going through and i'm like oh my god you're speaking to me like you just it sounds so weird and I'm like these two Mm. books they've just made me so much more aware and yeah them two books 100% I can't even explain how much I like them (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to get around to reading them at some point I've got a lot of books on my reading list but I've I've cracked for a few so I'll, I'll try and add those to the list as a final question Jazz then it's a broad one as well. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think oh, it's, it is a broad one and I think the answer is really broad. For me, it's education and time. We're trying to change the way that people are looking at such a big stigma and 
you look at that and that's in each culture there is a big stigma but a different stigma and then there's the generic the world there's this stigma on it and I think it's about educating people but I also think when people say that it's to educate it they then fire it back at like schools and it that side but it's not it's not about that schools are doing enough like I 100% think schools are deal with their own stress and trying to educate in general they don't need that pressure of mental health when you're already doing a lot at school I feel like it's just about educating people and having the tools and the it is such a hard one to try and change a stigma like I don't think that's ever going to be easy but over time having the space to be able to have conversations and I think the media have a big part in it I think the media are the worst for it because they're so negative and so quick to bully I guess they're so negative and horrendous about people if if there had to be a shift in the media and how the media are it could change how a lot of people are a lot easier than a school or a workplace and on that note Jasmine Roebuck thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast, talking about your mental health on an audio platform for the first time and for checking in with me. Thank you for having me. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Jasmine for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I'll put a link to where you can read that article we discussed that Jasmine wrote on Vent in full in the show notes and where you can follow her on social media. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to everyone who's tuned into this episode of the pod. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. Spread the word about Vent and the podcast. You can also write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you want. We'd really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can visit our GoFundMe to make a one-off donation. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Bye.